Hey there, Duke fans. Welcome to episode 438. Yeah, 438 of these. If you've been listening for a while, we love you. Episode 438 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. I am Jason Evans coming at you on a Thursday in the middle of August. And you would ordinarily think, what on earth are the guys going to talk about on a Thursday in the middle of August? Well, we got something special for you today. If you are a data geek the way we are, prepare to get your geek on. Before we get our geek on, though, let's uh, introduce the entire crew. Like I said, I'm Jason. The dude over there is Donald. The other guy is Sam. Donald, how are you doing today? Uh, I'm doing great. I'm really excited about what we have in store today. So I- I'm just going to stop right there so we can get on with it. Yeah, let's get to it. No no apologies to two girls that we called boys or anything like that on this episode. Sam, Klein. Sam, you're in a new place today, I think. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm joining from Chicago today, and I am also excited to get this show on the road. Without any further ado, then, we're going to bring in a name that you have heard multiple times on this podcast. Usually we just refer to him, you know, by like his shortened name, Ken Palm. But we are joined by the one, the only, the guru of the advanced analytics, Ken Pomeroy. Ken, thanks for coming on the DBR podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. It's uh, great to do a little off-season chatting, and uh, especially with uh, a fan base that has always been pretty kind to my work. So, uh, so great to be on. Absolutely, yeah. We are we are subscribers to your website. We constantly talk about your stats, the advanced metrics, the tempo, uh, you know, tempo free efficiency, and all that other kind of stuff that you do for us. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and let Sam get started with all this. Or wait, am I laying? I forget. Am I laying Sam or Donald? No, Sam, you're gonna get started. So Sam gets started and we'll each come in at various times, but take it away. Uh, thank you, Jason. And, and Ken, like Jason said, uh, we are, of course, huge fans. Listeners to the show have heard us reference your stats. When we do, uh, during the season, when we do previews of any team that Duke is coming up to play next, we usually start by just saying, all right, here's what the, here's what the tempo free stats say about this team and how they match up with Duke. And, and most of the conversation kind of comes from there. So uh, before we get into the questions, thank you so much for, for making it much easier for us to do our jobs. Uh, and, and hopefully we've driven a little bit more traffic to your site in return. Well, yeah, I appreciate that. And you're doing a great job of uh, pumping up my ego right now. So um, I'm going to have to work hard to uh, keep it in check the rest of the day, but. Uh, All right, let's, uh, let's get into it then. So uh, I know that you are an alum of, of two schools with, with, I'd, I'd call them big time basketball programs in Virginia Tech and Wyoming. Uh, you're also a faculty member at University of Utah. So the first thing we need to know is where does your college basketball rooting interest lie? Yeah, well, it's a very, very high praise to say that Virginia Tech and Wyoming are basketball. What did you say? Bas- did you say basketball They're, powers? They've both been they've both been uh, uh, in the NCAA tournament like multiple times in the last few years. Right. So True. relative to the whole scope of Division one. Wyoming not not compared won. to Duke, not compared to Duke. Not, yeah, <laughs> I'm not, I, I, I didn't go there. Right. Except for, except for one day in the ACC tournament in, in March, but uh, we don't have to go there. But uh, as far as, uh, as yeah, uh, my allegiances are, are with the two schools that I have degrees from. Um, so even though I, I would not personally consider them basketball powers, uh, they do, you know, certainly Virginia Tech gets to an NCAA tournament once every four or five years and uh, been really pleased with uh, where they've, gone uh you know under mike young obviously and wyoming is kind of having a little bit of a resurgence right now um has some pretty good teams although they've had some really horrible teams in the recent past but uh but anyway that's where my allegiance lies i should just correct the record that i'm no longer a a faculty member at the university of utah um not because of anything i i did wrong there but because just basketball has kind of taken over my life so uh so I, I have no allegiance to them, although living here locally in, in Utah, I do like it when the local teams do well. So that is the extent of my, my rooting interest there. Excellent. All right. Let's go back in time and talk a little bit about the invention of KenPom.com and the whole uh, little universe that you have, have built around your, uh, your database. So when did that light bulb click on that you knew that you needed to start gathering all the data to produce the tempo free stats that we now all read on a almost daily basis during the season. Yeah, it was just, it was kind of a curiosity to, that developed uh, early two thousands. You know, I was, I was still kind of a, a baseball fan at that point. And uh, 
again, uh, I'm not a baseball fan really anymore, but not because of my hatred of baseball or anything like that is because basketball took over my life. But, uh, but there was a lot of analytical work going on in baseball that was just really fascinating. You know, the kind of the amateur blogging industry was, was taking off at that point, book money ball came out. And, uh, and so that was really interesting stuff. And, uh, you know, college basketball was my favorite sport. Uh, it was a tremendous like challenge to follow it with so many teams all across the country that you uh, might not have heard of. So, um, so that's really where the motivation got started and uh, certainly inspired by the work of Dean Oliver, who wrote a book called Basketball on Paper back in 2002 or something. John Hollinger was was starting to do his work for um, for the NBA then and producing a pro basketball perspective. So there was a lot of material out there that was um, that was coming out about basketball, but not necessarily about college basketball. And so uh, so there just seemed to be an opportunity to to do some work there to gather all this data and, and put it on a website. And uh, if for nothing else, like entertain myself for, <laughs> for, uh, you know, figuring out which teams were doing kind of weird stuff uh, across the country. You're pretty forward about when you make major changes to how the model works on, on your site, at least for subscribers, how often are you, are you making tweaks to the model or at this point, is it kind of set in a way that, that you can just let the thing run? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, as time has gone on and my name has gotten more established and my ratings have gotten used more and more, uh, it's, there's like, not as much incentive for me to make major changes to the ratings. Um, to the extent that I do make changes now, it is like mostly, it's mostly been like tweaking the influence of the preseason ratings, how those are weighted during the season, um, because those have actually proved to be pretty effective early in the season of making predictions. So, um, so that's been the, the major, to the extent that there are major changes, that's been the major change that I've, I've made in recent years. But, um, but as far as everything else, it's like, you know, if I make a change to the ratings now, it's like, the questions you have to ask are like, do I, do I go back in time and make changes to all the previous ratings, you know, using an updated algorithm? I, like on the one hand, it seems like you should do that. But on the other hand, it's like, well, like I remember when my team was like number one in 2013 and now like you've just erased history and now they, they were no longer number one on January 23rd or whatever. So I, most of the time I've like kind of uh, just leaned on just trying to be consistent and Obviously, if better systems develop, and I'm like, I'm sure there are better systems out there. Uh, you know, that's the way it goes. My system's like pretty solid, and people know how it works pretty much, and and so I'm good with kind of like just for the most part keeping it consistent going forward. All of your compatriots in the baseball world are very happy to tweak the WAR algorithm every year. So you've yeah. got you've got at least more uh, uh, more consistency in, in in your old ratings than they do. Yeah, I think that's like actually, you know, kind of an advantage. Like people look at my site maybe and they're like, oh, what are all these numbers? Like, this is really complicated. But most of the numbers on my site are like, you know, percentages or, you know, one number divided by another or something like that. I mean, offensive rating is kind of complicated, but you kind of know what it means. Like it's easy to explain to people what it means. Whereas it's easy to explain what war means, I guess. But, you, you know, the calculations for it is something like you just you just assume is correct. And I mean, it's fine. Like it, I, I trust it as a data person, but I can see why fans who are not analytically inclined might have more trouble like buying into a war for baseball than they would for an offensive rating for basketball. So you've been publishing the ratings for, I think over 20 years now, there've been a lot of changes in the way that the game is played. Have any of those trends, you know, more three pointers, more emphasis on, on uh, switching defense, that kind of thing. Has any of that affected the way that you either read the ratings that you're producing or made you think about ways that you might change the algorithm to value different parts of the game differently? Um, yeah, so, I mean, clearly the game has changed, and I think that's something that, you know, you if you're a member of the site and you go back and look at a team page from, you know, 2004 or something, like, you immediately notice that, uh, like, three-point shooting rates were much lower then, and same three-point shooting rate rank a lot higher in 2004 than it would would now. Um, so I, you know, I just try to provide that context kind of in a very plain way, you know, what were the D one averages each season? So people can kind of understand the numbers in, in that context in terms of, I guess, interpreting those numbers in, in any deeper sense, I don't, nothing really jumps out at me in a way that like, you know, makes sense. I mean, the game has changed. It's gotten more offensive, you know, having more shooters on the floor at all times, just gives the offense an advantage that I think, you know, the defense to an ex some extent is at the mercy of the offense, certainly more than it was 20 years ago. So I think, you know, to me, the numbers just provide like that kind of backdrop on maybe understanding the game better. I don't think it maybe necessarily goes the other way where you have to like revisit the numbers in a way that, you know, Hey, the game's different. So maybe we should be looking at different numbers. Like 
I don't think there's like necessarily a huge uh, change in, in that approach. And how fair is it when you look at the the rankings and the subsequent like efficiencies from one year to compare a single year to another year from the past? Because I know that like on our show, we're not usually talking about old teams from from other programs, but we're always arguing about which of these Duke teams would beat these other Duke teams. So how much do you think uh, we can use your ratings to justify our answers in those debates? <laughs> Yeah, that's kind of a, a pet peeve of mine, you know, and people like go too far in that direction or, you know, they'll say, hey, this team's rating from this year is higher than this team's rating from 12 years ago. So they're a better team. Like every year is a little bit different. The fact that there are more teams now, too, I think affects that. Like it allows teams to maybe have higher ratings now than they would have had 15 years ago because, um, you know, all the ratings are relative to the mean of Division One. So there's more teams like the mean is going to be, you know, now it's the you know 180th best team, whereas 20 years ago, it was 150th best team. So naturally, if you're, you know, if you're comparing the mean to 180 teams below you, like your, your rating can be a little bit higher than it used to be. Um, so there's a lot of little issues like that. I mean, I think with some care, like, and you can make some judgments, like, I mean, clearly, like, um, you know, you go back, I think like Kansas, 2008, Kansas might have the highest rating ever, maybe Kentucky 2012 was second. I don't even keep track of these things in my head. Cause like I said, I don't think it's a great exercise, but but I think when there are large differences, that's where you can make the case. If there are small differences, then I don't think I would go there. And then also just comparing offenses and defenses, like, you know, 15, 20 years ago, uh, offenses weren't as good as they are now. So if you're comparing an offense from 2002 to 2022, like naturally, like the 2022 offense has a big advantage just based on the current environment. So those things get a little bit touchy to me as well. Like, uh, um, you really need to understand the context of how the game is played, I think, to to make definitive comparisons if that's, you know, that's the game you want to play. Absolutely. And are there any elements, I know you, you've you mentioned on the blog that there are certain elements that are, that are either you don't have in the model right now or that are basically impossible to capture, but are there any elements that you are trying to add to the model, injuries or, or other factors that you wish had um, more granularity in, in that, um, you know, in those metrics? Yeah, injuries are, are tough because, you know, somebody gets hurt, like, you know, we have enough data now where we can probably start handling that. But then what do you do, like, when that player comes back or when you don't know if the player's coming back? Like, you know, theoretically, the ratings for, like, right now, like, what's going to happen tonight? And if this player is returning, then do I flip the rating so that we go back to, like, the rating when that player was playing or not? You know, that's just a, that's just a tough issue that I basically just decide to ignore <laughs> for simplicity. Um, but as far as like what, I guess the one obsession is really just handling, like, you know, I, I use scoring margin as a proxy for like how, you know, how much more dominant was this team than its opponent on a particular night. And obviously that can be misleading on a game level. I think over the course of a full season, like those kind of things even out for 99% of teams, but on a game level, it doesn't. And I think trying to figure out how to handle that better is something that I, I would like to do, you know, not all 30 point wins are the same. Um, we, you, know, you obviously like to cut out garbage time in a lot of cases, but sometimes garbage time actually helps the rating. So, um, so it gets to be kind of tricky and I haven't found a way that I really like that's just better than raw scoring margin, but clearly there are instances where you can bring up where like, Hey, this game, there was something goofy happened in the last two minutes where a team, you know, got outscored 16 to Oh, and they were up 28 points and they end up winning by 12. And like, that wasn't really, they were actually way more dominant in that game. And so handling those things, I think is doable and it would require a lot of work and a lot of effort, but, um, but it's something I would like to like to eventually do. Yep. When we review Duke games, I can't tell you how many times we'll say like Duke will win the game by 10 points. And we'll yeah. say that was either, that was a great 10 point victory, or that was like a terrible 10 point victory. Uh, just depending yeah. on, on the way the game went. I want to hand it over to Donald, uh, who has a few more questions about sort of how things work today. Thanks. And, and Ken, again, I echo everyone when I say this is awesome that you're on here and, and being able to chat with you about this. We've talked a little bit about the model, and I want to kind of translate it into today's college basketball game, beginning with the transfer portal, because that trend has been uh, players transferring earlier more often. How does that affect the quality of your metrics? It, because, I mean, when you think about it, for example, I don't think any of us saw Alondis Williams developing into an all ACC player last year based on transferring. Yeah. Alondis Williams, Jake LaRavia, like uh, all sorts of good stuff happening at Wake Forest last year. But um, yeah, I, uh, it's, it's so I think for like, you know, by the end of the season, it's fine. Like you would know who these teams are and 
Um, it's just as good as it has always been in February, and March. I think it's the early season ratings, the preseason ratings, where it becomes a challenge. Obviously, transfers are have more influence now. I do have a way to handle that. I think in general, honestly, like the transfer portal probably should help preseason ratings because I'm less reliant on trying to guess on players who have no division one experience and how they're going to impact their team. Whereas now, like I should, like, there's always going to be surprises like Alondis Williams, but you know, for the most part, you should be able to model like, Hey, this guy's coming from this program. He's up transferring or he's transferring, you know, to the same type of program. What, you know, what kind of impact is he going to have on a team? And, um, and so, uh, so when it comes to that kind of stuff, um, I think in general, like the transfer portal should help. I'm not saying that it is helping my ratings necessarily, but I haven't noticed like a huge difference. Like every year we get, you know, early, like late November, early December, people will talk about my ratings and they'll be like, well, you know, even Ken says like the early ratings aren't that good, you know, or whatever. And I'm like, well, when have I ever said that? Like, actually they're pretty good. Like if you look at the the average like error in my like predictions in like late November, early December compared to like February, it's like, you know, 0.2 or 0.3 points worse or something like that per game. Like it's not something you'd really notice. So I think even the, even the poll, the guys who do polls say that on the whole, we're pretty good at predicting these things, even with limited data. Yeah. The yeah. preseason, the preseason poll in college basketball is supposed to be the single best predictor of who will win the national title. Yeah. Yeah. The preseason poll is, is really valuable. Like I actually do value the human polls like preseason wise. Once the games start playing, it's not that useful, but I was just looking at the data and like, so last year in December, the average error on my predictions was 8.9 points in terms of like predicting the scoring margin of a game, you know, and then in March and April or in February, it was 8.6. So, you know, three tenths of a point difference, basically. So, uh, so it does help to have that additional information as we go on in the season, but like the preseason ratings are, you know, they're pretty useful. Like they're a little bit more useful than probably people would, would like to think, but we're, we're actually like, you know, whether it's the pollsters themselves or computers, like we're pretty good at kind of judging talent based on where it's coming from transfer wise, how good the team was last year, you know, those kind of things. I mean, you just talked about the preseason rankings and kind of how, you know, you shape it, but how complicated does it get? Cause like for us, we feel it's even complicated for Duke fans because every year we have so many freshmen coming in, so many transfers, yada, yada, yada. But like, how does, how is it for you when you're having to deal with 358 division one programs and all of the, you know, transfers back and forth, people leaving people coming in. Yeah. So I think if you like are an expert on a team, like, so like you guys should probably, if you are doing like an honest assessment of Duke basketball heading into the season, you probably are going to beat, my preseason rating of Duke, like in the long run. Um, but the advantage I have is that I have data for 300, you know, this year, 362 teams. And you're not, you know, you're not going to beat my prediction for Sam Houston State because you probably don't know anything about Sam Houston State. I mean, you can do some research, but you just don't have that like feel for who they recruited or the players going back or the transfers or whatever. And so my I'm totally database... researching Sam Houston State. Now. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm all over it. <laughs> <laughs> so my database approach is generally going to, to be, I mean, it's really the advantage of data in general is that it can see everything. It has data for all the teams. And so, um, so it's going to beat you in aggregate, but if you're an expert on a specific team, it's, it's probably not going to beat you. I would actually tell you that we are not good at predicting what Duke is going to do because we get completely wrapped up in whatever the news of the week or, or the news of the month is. And our emotions. The you, you, yeah, you can't, exactly. you can't so, divorce your emotions. Yeah. We, we care too much. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a point to be made for that. And like every year I kind of get a kick out of it. You know, usually there's like a thread on Reddit about my preseason ratings and, you know, there's hundreds of like responses on where I'm wrong. And so it's great to like go back after the year's over and look back at that thread and see like where people were right and where people were wrong. And it's, you know, it's like about 50, 50, you know, people are so sure like their team is going to outperform my ratings or whatever, or some of their rivals going to underperform my ratings. And sometimes they're right. And sometimes they're wrong. And, uh, I think I do think experts can can beat my ratings on the teams that they're familiar with. But I think in general, like for the whole list of 362, like it it puts, you know, 99 percent of teams in at least the right neighborhood for a starting point, which is, you know, basically the goal before the season. Like, it's, you know, it's either have no ratings or have teams in the right neighborhood. And like, I think it you know, does a pretty good job putting teams in the right neighborhood. Ken, is there a team that you feel like, you know, especially maybe recently that, that you feel like, gosh, I seem to always overrate those guys or underrate those guys? Mm, well, uh, I don't know. You, maybe you have somebody in mind. I mean, 
I, one... I really don't. I really don't. Okay. I, mean, I feel like a few years ago, I I'd be talking about Virginia. I feel like Virginia, oh. you know, was kind of consistently better than people thought they were. But lately, that hasn't been the case. So, right. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, yeah, Virginia would come up. Obviously, the year, what, it was 2018, they lost to UMBC. Like that year, you know, you might say, oh, man, they were really overrated. Why were they number one? But I, I mean, I defy somebody to come up with like a, a worthy system or worthy rating system that didn't have them number one during the regular season. Um, you know, they had the best regular season of any team, like clearly, like they just they couldn't, couldn't beat Duke. But um, everybody else, they, they beat and usually beat badly. And so, um, so yeah, I think Virginia is OK. The one team actually does come to mind is Virginia Tech, probably like I'm surprised they don't get more of a reputation. Um, I usually have them ranked pretty high. Obviously, last year had them ranked really high during the regular season, you know, started off horribly in ACC play and then finally salvaged it and finally validated it in the ACC tournament. But um, but that's a team that I'm, you know, spoiler alert, I'm going to have ranked probably higher in my preseason ratings than, you know, anybody else will have ranked. And so uh, so we'll see how that turns out. But uh, but that's the one team that obviously because I'm familiar with, like kind of comes to mind I'm like, oh, wow, they're, nobody's really paying attention to Virginia Tech. What's going on? I mean, they were I was going to ask, is that by design? Is that where you kind of yeah. say, you know, play you know put a little home cooking in in, in the in the algorithm for uh, virginia tech yeah i don't know like that's the thing like if you if you're a fan of a team would i would i cook the books for them or, or against them you know you kind of maybe right. don't want to don't want to have super high expectations heading into the season so um so yeah I, I will say like i when i look at my preseason ratings i usually do pretty poorly at like trying to figure out where i've screwed up there's a lot of times like you know like last year like iowa is a good case like they were ranked in my top 25 and i think that you know I don't think they got a single vote in the AP poll. And that was a team. Then you looked at their lineup. You're like, well, you know, like Keegan Murray's probably going to be awesome, but they don't really have any help. Like how's this team going to be top 25? And then they turned out to be pretty good tournament performance, notwithstanding. But um, so I usually have the same issue too, of like trying to figure out which teams are overrated and underrated based on my ratings. Like usually I feel like I'm about 50, 50 on, on trying to pick those out. So uh, we, we talked about your, you know, your rating system and in this, college basketball analytics world there's quite a few that everyone knows about Torvik BPI Sagarin there was the RPI you know back in the day that's kind of evolved I mean first of all how do you like what do you think about your competition and, and also how do you feel that in the NCAA when they kind of retooled their selection criteria they added your metrics to that criteria like how does that feel <laughs> Uh, it's, uh, I mean, so it's a little uncomfortable to be a part of the, 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 you know, the selection criteria. Um, I mean, I feel like they kind of duplicated my ratings with the net as it is. So it's like, <laughs> they've used my the net is all over the place, by the way. <laughs> yeah. I didn't even all over them, the, but I mean, certainly so much like, better, you're so much better than the net. It's not even funny. Well, I mean, early in the season it is because the net doesn't have preseason ratings, but by the end of the season, I mean, by the end of the season, like all these ratings converge on these other, each other, right? Like you have, you know, 30 games of data. And so there's not much difference in these ratings. So, um, so, uh, you know, uh, that's, it's kind of the dirty little secret, but, um, but yeah, I'm a little uncomfortable with it being, yeah, being part of the NCAA's uh, list of metrics. It doesn't, I don't think it really comes into play a whole lot. So I'm not too concerned about it. Like I said, I think the net is as duplicated my system enough that like, you know, whatever influence my system has, it's like by proxy through the net. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, uh, I, I don't know what else to say. I'm a little uncomfortable about it, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, I obviously could ask them to remove it and I think about, it, you know, like this isn't, this isn't worth the, the time anymore. Like I have enough brand recognition that I don't need it. I don't need it in their system. They never really asked me for permission to put it in the system. So, um, so there's that, but, um, but again, I don't think it really plays much of a role. So. Um, I, can I, I can you. I press on this really quick? Yeah. Press what away. makes you uncomfortable about it? Is it that there's so many other problems with the NCAA that you just don't want to be affiliated or oh. that, that it's weird as a fan and as sort of an outside observer now being, uh, sort of an, an input thrown into the room. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, yeah. I would, I would love to be in the room. <laughs> Duke number well, one as a fly on the wall, you know? but yeah. If I ever get invited to be in the room, I will uh, have you uh, be my uh, <laughs> emissary, Jason. Um, You're yeah, here I, first, folks. mark that down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm not too comfortable with the process itself. Right. Like it's a, it's just a very nebulous process. It doesn't have like super well-defined criteria. And could be a lot better. And, uh, you know, I'm certainly like willing to like offer advice to the NCAA and have done so in the past. So I'm not like anti-NCAA in that respect. I do think like the, the people that are 
you know, making this process are generally like well-intentioned and trying to get it right. They just don't have the background that people like I have. So, um, so that kind of like causes some problems, but, um, so I, uh, um, so what makes me uncomfortable about it? You know, what really makes me uncomfortable about it? You know, here's a good story, like for you, like 15, you know, 20 years ago, I used to put the RPI on my site, right? Like Jerry Palm was doing the RPI and he eventually went to a pay, pay site. And I was like, man, this is like, like just an easy formula to compute. I'm just going to put it on my site. And I did it and got a little bit of like attention for doing that. And, but then I started like getting called, like I got a call from a, a an SEC coach when I was working at my old day job just like cold called me and was like, Hey, why is like my rival, like 20 spots ahead of me in the, in the RPI. And I'm like, dude, like, I don't need to be answering these questions. <laughs> so I got away from the RPI and did my own thing. And now I'm starting to get calls from coaches. Like, well, why is my rival 20 spots ahead of me in your system? Like what's going on? We just, we just won our game. You know, like we just beat this, like, sorry team by 50 points. Like how can we even move up? And I just don't need to answer these questions either. You know, like, like, it's just like, it's just uh, overhead that it's not the reason I got into, into doing this. And so, so that's part of it. Like it's part of it when fans get, you know, get wrapped up and like, is their team moving up one or two spots in my system? Like after a certain win, it's like, man, you guys should be concerned about other things besides that. So that's really like probably the main source of my angst is that I just don't need that kind of like, like uh, I love the attention. I love the people who use my work, but I think sometimes it's, it's the attention is for the, the wrong reasons. If you're worried about whether your team is moving up one or two spots after a win. Well, wait, I want to be really clear. Do you actually get phone calls from coaches who are upset that they didn't move up because they beat some lousy, you know, 320 sub team? Really? Maybe that's not the best example, but I do get calls from coaches <laughs> who are like, what's going on with my team's rating? Um, there was, you know, there was a coach last year who called me and, you know, his team got off to a good start and they started off really low in my preseason ratings and, and, you know, they were moving up slowly and, but, you know, they didn't move up that much and coach was really frustrated about that. And I had to explain to him, Hey, I got preseason ratings. My system's designed to be predictive. It's trying to predict your next game. So it's not going to overreact to like starts and stuff. But if you like, you keep playing well, you'll keep moving up and um, you know, we'll see where you are at the end of the year. <laughs> As it turned out, like, I think they ended up like at the time he called me, I think they ended up like maybe like five or 10 spots lower at the end of the season than where they were. So like, it turned out the system of like was doing a pretty good job, but, but yes, system... I do get calls from coaches <laughs> complaining about their ratings. That, that is a fact. Yep the system never forgets and it always it feels like it's always you know <laughs> levels out at the end right so well i don't think I, I, mean, I don't i don't forget about those calls so i'm always checking like well, i'm oh, gonna yeah. follow this team and see what happens and hopefully the coaches too because i hope they like understand like how the system works now like it's not designed mm -hmm. to like reward a team put a team you know 10th after a 5-0 start when they're beating you know teams that are ranked in the 150s or something so we've told you how we use your rating system. You've told us how some coaches apparently use your rating system. How does Kim Pomeroy use his rating system? Do you like watch games and track using your, your site or, or you, you know, any, or any of your analytics that you've put together, or do you just kind of set it and get it? Um, I mean, I, uh, I use it. I don't use the ratings as much as I use like the underlying data. You know, I'm kind of looking out for like teams that are, uh, changing their system, changing their style, new coaches in a situation, like what kind of style they're using, you know, like, um, you know, Carolina last year, like, you know, when Hubert Davis took over, like they just decided to like not be a offensive rebounding, like juggernaut, like they weren't at Roy Williams for year after year. And so like, that was pretty interesting to me. The ratings themselves are like less interesting to me, although it, they are interesting in terms of like Houston, like being really highly rated last year while not having like a single quality win and people just ragging on Houston all year. And it's like, well, yeah, I kind of wonder, is Houston the real deal or not? And like, well, you know, more often than not, when you're ranked high in my ratings, you, you're, you know, you are the real deal. And I think they kind of proved that in the tournament. So, um, so it's for cases like that, you know, it's like really the, the teams that are uh, just like defying like the public opinion are, are the teams that I'm, I'm really interested in and kind of start to, to gravitate towards following a little more closely during the season. Now, before I turn it over to Jason, as we kind of wrap up this segment of the, the college basketball today, uh, I know Kim, I know your, your normal site takes up a lot of your time, especially during basketball season. But are, are there any other sports analytics projects that you're working on? Oh, it's funny. You should ask that. Uh, no, I, uh, the only other sport I've ever really gotten into is, uh, is curling analytics, which um, probably doesn't have a, a big, big audience for uh, not a big crossover audience with Duke basketball, let's say, 
Uh, maybe if we were talking Minnesota basketball or something. I give, hey, I give the curling uh, site a click every so often. Yeah. Just because I'm like, maybe today's the day. <laughs> I love curling. I love curling. So you're, you're speaking my language. Go right ahead. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the only other sport I've really gotten into. And it's mainly because it's like a sport that I'm interested in. I play a lot. Um, but also like there was like almost there was very little other work going on with curling analytics, you know, like, yeah, I'm tempted to like get into college football. Like that's like kind of a natural, like next project to get into. I feel like college, uh, college football analytics are lacking. Certainly from what I watch on TV, like the broadcasters, like, you know, sound like they don't know anything about like modern analytics. And I know there's some work going on there. Bill Connolly, most notably at ESPN does a lot of work with that, but um, it would just be a huge project. And I know a huge time sink and basketball is already a time sink and curling. And that was also a time sink. So. And do you want, I mean, you've already, you've already upset all these uneducated basketball coaches and media members. <laughs> do you want to do the whole project over again with football? Like <laughs> what, what's even the point? You think coaches are yeah. calling you now? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I know. <laughs> I know, but it would be kind of fun to like, just, you know, shove it in people's faces when, you know, coaches are punting on fourth and one from, you know, the opponents 35 or whatever, like, which seems to happen once or twice a week. Um, it would be fun to, to shed more light on that. I know people have shed light on that, but I would love to, to join in that partnership. Um, so that is very tempting. Just the stats that are cited by, by broadcasters during games are just, it's the same. It's the same thing. It was in basketball 20 years ago where it's like, yeah, this team, you know, they're, their, their past defense is third in the country, you know, or whatever. And it turns out they played like, you know, three like option teams or something. They played all the service academies to start the season, which are never passing. So it's like, well, their past defense is probably not that good guys. Like maybe it's like schedule based. Um, so whenever I hear something like that, I get tempted to jump in, but uh, the reality is I just, I do not have the, the time or energy now to do that. Okay. Ken, Sam and Donald have gone, I'm going to take it and we're going to talk at least a little bit about Duke. And I know that that's going to be a challenge for you. You know, <laughs> as, as you pointed out, we, we probably, we certainly care more and know more about the team than you do. But, but I do want, um, I want to get a little bit of your perspective on the Blue Devils. We always seem to do well in your rankings, um, especially, you know, even in years, I would say when, when the fans are kind of down on the program, sometimes I'll look at the Ken Palm rankings. I'm like, Hey, you know, we're not, as, we're not as bad off as people seem to think. Uh, wh what do you attribute that to? Is that just like, Hey, coach K is a great coach and he figures it out or, or what is it? Yeah. I mean, that certainly was like the, the trademark of the coach K era was they never, they never had a bad year. Like even, you know, I mean, 2021 was, was not a great year, but even you look at the ratings, they, they were pretty good. Like They, they were, were number great. 36. They were number 36 that year. It's yeah, the worst they've like, been in the history of your rankings. Yeah. Yeah. That's the worst. Yeah, that's the worst <laughs> worst year is so, number 36. Most right. schools would kill for that. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it was, and there were obviously like extenuating circumstances that, you know, if you want to throw out that year, you can, you can, you can throw it out. Um, so, so I don't know why that is, but, um, but yeah, it's like, I think you can chalk it up to, to coaching. Um, you know, certainly like that's one trademark of the coach care. The other trademark is that like a lot of coaches, you can like anticipate their style. We talked about like Roy Williams and how like, you know, every year they were great at offensive rebounding, but you look at like the, the list of seasons for coach K and it's like, there's just like different style after different style. He's jumping around from year to year. So um, he certainly was like one of the most flexible coaches in terms of like adapting to personnel. And I mean, I, I would assume that's like a contribution to like them just being like, consistently you know a top 10 team almost every single year in my rating so um ken yeah. can we take that clip and transport it back like 20 years because <laughs> that what you just said was totally not the coach k reputation pre like the the jj reddick years hmm. uh, and, and i feel like that's totally changed in the era of of your metrics yeah. So, uh, wait, so like, what is, so what was the criticism that he was too inconsistent or not, or sticking to no, one that, style no, that he was, that, that, that he was always playing the same style that like Duke always played the same defensive game that they, they had this, well, Duke was also, I think probably hotter on, on three point shooting in like the early two thousands yes. before it really blew up JJ yep. being like a, a big example of that, but there were plenty of guys on those on those good teams around 2001 the, was yeah. like yeah uh, everybody in that 2001 except for Carlos Boozer everyone was shooting threes and that was in an era where that was unheard of 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they took over 40% of their shots from threes, which like even now would be like kind of noteworthy for a team like vying for a national title. But then it was like absurd. And it's odd, like, you know, like they the, the team has kind of like gone against the grain since then. Like really since, you know, the J.J. Redick years, like they haven't shot as many threes while everybody else is shooting more threes. But um, but yeah, I mean, that's uh, yeah, that's I mean, that's, you know, super unusual how they've like how they've changed styles. You know, we touched on this earlier. Um, the, the, the challenge in having a preseason ranking for Duke because there's so many freshmen. I mean, if, like looking at this year's Duke team, and I know you haven't released your, at least I don't think you've released your preseason rankings yet. Where, where, how close are, by the way, how close are you on them? Well, I mean, I have them, but uh, I have traditionally not released them until uh, maybe, you know, late October, mid to late October. I do that, uh, you know, for multiple reasons. One is there's still going to be like personnel changes from some teams that we just can't anticipate. Sure. Probably another like coaching change that we can't anticipate, which goes into the ratings. Um, but also like, there's just so much like information out there now. There's so much group thing. People just come to like a consensus that uh, is a little bit of annoying. And so I, I kind of like rebel against that and don't, don't add to the possibility of people like looking at my ratings and thinking they're like some sort of gold standard. And we'll just, we'll just wait until the preseason poll comes out. Then I'll, then I'll release the ratings. Uh, are, are, will you give us a little hint? What do you think of Duke this year? Yeah. My hint is that like Duke will probably be like lower in my preseason ratings than in any other preseason rating you see, you know, not that they're going to be ranked terribly, but one of the factors is coaching. And um, obviously, like, I think most Duke fans probably look at John Shire as like a sure bet to be a really good coach. Like obviously the recruiting part is like falling into place really well. And the fact that he's just been, you know, groomed for this role for the past few years, you know, helps. But my system sees him as a first year head coach at a big time program. And the track record isn't like terrible for those kind of cases, but it's not great. And so that like really dings the team in addition to the fact that like their personnel is almost entirely turning over and they weren't like super awesome last year. So that like, that will play a role as well. And, and that kind of gets to what I was going to ask you about. Uh, how, how do you look at freshmen? How, and I, as I was saying earlier, we, we touched on this a little bit. It must be so difficult. You know, how do you look at a, a Derek Livey and a Derek Whitehead and the such at Duke and then go, Oh, you know, I can, I can have some notion of how these guys are going to do. Yeah, I mean, it's not terribly like intelligent, you know, it just, it looks at their, it looks at their recruiting ranking and, uh, and applies that to the team and, uh, and um, kind of applies it into a way that like helps like worse teams more. So like if the, if a top recruit goes to like a lower ranked team, it'll, it'll improve their rating more than it will a, a better ranked team, but um, it's not super, yeah, it's not super intelligent. could be more intelligent in that sense. Could, could use AAU stats, you know, grassroots stats. I think like Filipowski in particular, like has like really good, like grassroots stats but i do not include those directly in my model like um it's it it would help like it would help in the margins but um wouldn't help a ton so in general it just sees hey duke has like the best class in the country and this is what they've done the last four years and they have a new head coach and puts kind of all that in the mix and they don't really have anybody coming back from last year's team you know um you know uh, so that all goes into the mix and spits out a rating and in the case of duke it ends up being not very flattering i should run it like if like with coach k coming back and see what it would be but but anyway oh it won't I'd be very flattering really but interesting uh, yeah, yeah yeah we would we would love actually we would love to get the the with coach k and with uh arbitrary new head coach yeah version right, of the, right of the rankings yeah maybe i'll uh i'll get that ready for for the release because uh yeah it could be that could be interesting yeah that, I, I you know i think back when like hoiberg i think no not hoiberg steve prom took over iowa state like six or seven years ago. And Iowa state was like pegged to be like a top five team that year. And I don't think they ended up being top five in the preseason, but I kind of look back at like new coaches that took over programs that were top five teams. Like just like even Steve Prom had previous experience and, um, and it wasn't super flattering. Like there weren't, there were only like, you know, four or five teams like in the last 20 years or so where you could say that. And like the results were like, not terrible, like I said, but they weren't like the, the teams didn't live up to expectations. So that's part of what the, the, the algorithm was seeing we're all in a collective delusion right now about the John Shire thing, even though we all know how all the previous Duke assistant coaches have done in their stops after they've, <laughs> they've left Duke. We're all very aware of that. Yeah. I mean, the key is, you know, obviously they've all left Duke and this is a little bit different. I mean, they, I mean, just, there's no reason to really doubt John Shire. Like, you know, they're obviously part of what you see in that, in that trend is that there's a little, like there's, 
you know, Steve Prom goes to Iowa State, like there is a little bit of discontinuity there. There's kind of a, a new regime coming in. And in this case, there's not a new regime coming in. There's a, about as much stability as you could have for a new coach. So, um, so in that sense, I could see why you would, you know, bet that Duke would outperform the model. But people were saying that about Carolina. I had Carolina ranked horribly last year for the same reason. And for, you know, up until mid uh, February, yeah. the middle of March. <laughs> I mean, even uh, yeah, even you after to, if, if you don't, you don't have to, you don't have to explain it. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we know. <laughs> right. Right. I, I got you. But I mean, the point is like, they were, they weren't very good for, they were not a top 25 team for the regular season. Uh, you know, I was going to ask you more about John Shire, but you really, you really covered it there. I, I have two other things I want to get to. First one is just really quickly, just like a geek kind of thing. Do you get excited when your model, when your metrics predict a score exactly right. I think it happens several <laughs> times a year, right? About 10 times a year. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do get excited. Um, you typically tweet what, when it happens, don't you? <laughs> well, I don't tweet it as much anymore because usually some, if somebody tweets it for me, I'll retweet it. That's basically how I roll now. I don't, I try not to cheat my own heart. I'll let somebody else do it. Like there was the, the famous night last year where I, I, you know, it was a 28 game schedule and like the model predicted the correct winner for all 28 games, which I tweeted that out and said something like, yeah, tonight we solved college basketball, which is obviously like <laughs> a totally ironic tweet and not meant to be taken seriously because first of all, like the model has a probability for every game. So actually like the chance of that happening is like extremely remote. Like that's the main reason to tweet it out is that actually this is like never going to happen again in my life. So I better tweet this out. Um, but yes, I do get excited when the final score is predicted exactly. Cause I don't think people understand like how impossible that is to do. I love it. Uh, you know, the other thing I think that people don't get when they look at, at your predictions, like, oh, you know, they, uh, Pomeroy says this team has a 55% chance to win. They're going to win. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Actually the worst, know, the worst part is when I have, you know, um, uh, a team favored in their next 10 games. Right. And you know, people will say, oh, you know, Palmer expects them to go undefeated in their next 10 games. Like, this is great. And like, no, that's not what it's saying. And I never really know how to like convey that information on the site without making like the information infinitely more complex. So I just kind of leave it that way and hope that the people that say that get called out by somebody who understands how things work. But yeah, that's probably the most, the most frustrating thing of uh, how people use my predictions. Would you, would you like to issue a manifesto about data literacy on the internet just while we're on this? <laughs> yeah. I, like, I have my own thoughts about this, but I, I don't have any reputation for being, you know, a, 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 you know, a connoisseur of this sort of thing. So if you want to give us that, we'd love it. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I try not to be too hard on, on, you know, people, because I understand that not everybody has my background and not everybody understands probabilities and it is, it is a challenge. So, um, so that darn math, math is I'm so not, yeah. I mean, I'm not like, <laughs> Oh, you know, everybody's stupid. <laughs> you know, like I'm trying to be like that. Like I get that, that, people have different specialties and uh and they don't quite understand it but I, I i would just hope that like people that are gonna make definitive statements about my ratings would understand a little bit more about probability and how they work before they they make those definitive statements because i feel like if you make a definitive statement you know you should be correct about what you're saying you know 99 of the time if you want to hedge that's fine if you want to hedge that you know all, your, all bets are off but if you're going to say like you know ken palm predicts this team to win its next 15 games at home it's like no, no, no. Just do a little bit of research about that. Try to try to try to figure it out. Ken, this has been fabulous. We're going to wrap up. We have a tradition here on the DBR podcast. Usually when we have a guest on who's connected to Duke, I ask them for a Coach K story, you know, some story about how Coach K, you know, motivated the team or something like that. We've gotten some great ones over the years. Obviously, you're probably not going to have a Coach K story. Although if you do, please tell it now. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I was going to ask you, and you kind of alluded to this a little bit earlier. Do you have a good story about an interaction with a coach, someone who really didn't understand things? Or, you know, just give me like your funniest, this coach doesn't get data mm. <laughs> story mm. that you can think of. Man, I thought you we were going to go somewhere names. else with this. You, you can use names if you want, but you don't have to use names. <laughs> I mean, I've had coaches call me and they don't understand the numbers and stuff like that. And I, I had like a, here's the, I guess I'll just give you this nugget because I had a current ACC coach call me in the off season. So you guys can just speculate as to who it is. You have a one in what, 15, 15. Sorry, years. current. So a current ACC coach. Current ACC coach. This isn't that funny though, but it's just like, you know, I, he was trying, it was a great conversation actually. And uh, I, uh, um, yeah, it was a great conversation. 
but he was trying to tell me like that Gonzaga like wasn't very good. And my system might, you know, it's true. My system might overrate Gonzaga a little bit, but Gonzaga has been really good the last few years. I hate to tell you guys, but they've been one of the easily one of the five best teams every single season, you know, if not the best team, like the best team doesn't always win the NCAA tournament, but he was trying to explain to me how, how Gonzaga wasn't very good. And I was coming back with like facts. I'd researched this and kind of told him, Hey, you know, Gonzaga has the best record against power conference teams the last five years, like of any team in the country, including power conference teams. So like I think they've clearly like shown that they're pretty good, and he was just going back and forth with me and telling me, I don't know, like I don't know, they don't have to play, like they don't have to play the grind of the ACC schedule every night, and you know, it's kind of going off about the ACC, which ACC hasn't been that great the last few years. I hate to break it to you guys, but uh, um, but anyway, is that we really know. that funny? <laughs> That's not that funny, but let me give you one like Coach K related stat, okay? This is this is where I I, I can come through, I think, and I think this is something that's not talked about enough. Maybe you guys talk about this, but do you know what year was the worst? year in coach k's entire career for two-point shooting how well do you know duke basketball two-point year for two-point shooting his worst two-point shooting team ever including army okay we're including army but it did happen at duke i i'm i'm gonna take i haven't looked at this i'm not you guys can see i'm i'm, I'm looking at the screen i'm not looking at my at my other screen uh, i'm gonna guess it's yes. 2010 the year that duke won the championship only shooting three-pointers yes that is the and, correct and answer offensive rebounding Yes. Yes. And, Let's go. Uh, yeah. 47. They're a 47% two point shooting team, which ranked 201st in the country and uh, was absolutely awful. And, uh, and then Lance Thomas went on to have the best NBA career of anybody on the team. Yeah. So, yeah. so if you think you can predict <laughs> basketball, you're yep. wrong. Yeah. It was just a really like oddball team and uh, just held up that, you know, I mean, the ACC was actually, you know, pretty good that season on a really good def interior defensive league. So that like helped kind of suppress their two point shooting, but you know, they got into the tournament and they just like destroyed teams offensively for the most part, maybe until the, mm -hmm. the title game. But, um, um, you know, they were just really good offensively just by doing everything else. Great. Sucked at two point shooting. And when I talk to coaches, I tell them like, Hey, you know, you can usually like look at two point shooting. That's like a really good indicator of how good your team is, you know, offensively and defensively. Like that's like not luck. Like that's, you know, ingrained in how your team is. So like first five, six games in the season, look at that and you'll figure out like, are you good or not? And well, Duke, that was like an enormous exception. So that team will always like have a uh, special place in my heart just for how they kind of defied expectations and kind of the national narrative that year. God, this was a great conversation, Ken. Thanks so much. And by the way, I never got a chance to talk with you about it. Your program rankings, mm. Duke is far and away. Your program <laughs> rankings goes from 1997 to present. And Duke is far and away the top program in the Ken Palm era, if you want to call it that. So thank you. <laughs> yeah. well, it's, not, it's not a gift, but it has to do with that consistency we're talking about and like recent, you know, recent recruiting as well. So, um, so yeah, John Shire is, uh, you know, inheriting the number one program. So uh, big, big responsibility there. Well, like I was saying, we, we, we appreciate the way that you have educated all of us. Um, uh, both historically and today <laughs> uh, about analytics and college basketball and the way to look at it. Uh, this was a real treat. And, and if you decide to run those numbers, coach K versus John Shire, email me, baby. I think that'd be, we, we, uh, we find that fascinating. We'll have you, you back on. Exclusive. If you, if you run that, we'll absolutely have you back uh, on. No question about it. Um, and, and you can tell the Duke fans what the expectations you, would be. If you don't, if you don't want to share it with us exclusively and just want to publish it yourself, at least give us the credit for having given you the idea. All right. All right. I'll, uh, I'll do that. I'll do that. It's a deal. Ken Pomeroy. Thanks so much. Like I said, at the beginning, we are subscribers to your website, Duke fans. If you want to be smarter about college basketball, it doesn't cost very much. Get a subscription to KenPom.com. And uh, Ken, again, we, we just appreciate you so much. Yeah. Thanks for having me on guys. Great conversation. Enjoyed it. And uh, looking forward to uh, seeing what Duke does during the season. We'll be back in just a moment on the DBR podcast. We will react to that amazing conversation with Ken Pomeroy. And we bid farewell to one of the most important members of the Duke community, someone who actually never attended Duke University. That story when we come back. Guys, we're back from the break. I hope everyone took a moment during the break and just paused and digested what a really fascinating conversation that was with Ken Pomeroy. 
Um, Sam, you're a guy who's really into data and analytics. I mean, wow. Was that fun or what? Super fun. And I was a little bit nervous that we were, I, I've never seen an interview with Ken Pomeroy. I read a, a few articles that, that quoted him before we did this to, to make sure I was up to date on all the info. And I got the detail wrong that he apparently is not working at Utah anymore, which is fine. But I was a little bit nervous that he was going to be like more ornery towards uh, people who sort of don't understand what he's doing. And I can actually, when he, when he referenced the fact that he doesn't snipe back at people, I was thinking about how his Twitter feed is actually more like sort of cheeky and, and fun than it is, you know, angry. And, and there are other stats guys on the internet that I feel like get angrier at people for not being stats literate, but, but he's, he's pretty accommodating of that. So all of that aside, very cool to hear the, the, the way that he sort of thinks about reading his own metrics throughout the season and the there's like a, a combination of of humility but also uh, confidence in in what he's doing and i think it, he has like such a good mindset about the the task that he basically has laid in front of himself and now that like everyone in college basketball players coaches fans media everyone is basically just following him um and he's got you know sort of understated a lot of responsibility to uh, to sort of get things right or get get things close to right because everyone is reading him and everyone's listening to him. You know, that whole interview was terrific, but I still go back to like how, in a funny way, right? And in, in a good way, how uncomfortable he feels about the NCAA using his work in determining who the 68 teams are going to be in the NCAA tournament. I think that is... Again, goes back to the humility perspective. Also, he kind of said, yo, like it, it, in fewer words, kind of said, NCAA is a tire fire and I don't want to be a part of that, right? I don't want to be associated with, you know, why a team got into a tournament versus someone else. And I think, I mean, like for, for those listeners out there, like we could see, like you could feel how uncomfortable he was even talking about his criteria being included or his ratings being included in the criteria for NCAA tournament selection. So I thought that was fascinating because, you know, out of all of the, you know, rating systems out there, his is, you know, predominantly the best, right? Like we use it, we reference it often. We don't do that uh, because we're playing favorites. We do that because it is the best. And the NCAA in an effort to be better has taken the best rating system and applied it to their criteria. And that person's just like, nah, man, I don't need y'all, you know, messing my stuff up. Like, I thought that was fascinating, a fascinating look about just, you know, how the NCAA just kind of takes. And at the end of the day, some of these rating systems, and I'm sure, you know, we haven't talked to Sagarin or Torvik or, or any of the other ones, but, you know, I, the fact that they're, you're just kind of, you know, wanting to keep the NCAA at arm's length when their system is really dominating how we select the tournament is fascinating to me. You know, I, I agree with you, Donald. I loved sort of the humility there. I can't believe, like, we were joking around. He was like, yeah, if they ever asked me to be in the room, I don't want to be there. And I was like, are you crazy? <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I love that humility from him. But then the other thing that I thought, Duke fans need to, you know, I hope folks listen to that entire interview to hear what he was saying about John Shire and about Duke this coming season with a first-time head coach. And yes, everything is set up so that Shire should be successful. But, but, but even with everything set up for Shire to be successful, he's a first time head coach at a big time program with, you know, Ken talked about continuity in a positive way. There's actually, in terms of the players, very little continuity, <laughs> almost no continuity. One, one significant player is back. Everyone else is pretty much new. No offense to Jalen Blakes. He played in practice last year and stuff, but. Um, and I think, you know, Ken Pomeroy said, when his rankings come out, you're going to see Duke's going to be lower than you would expect. Almost everyone else has Duke in the top seven or eight or so. And I, you know, I, my bet is he's going to have us maybe, you know, maybe barely top 15, but that's, there's a good reason for that. And, and I think that's just an important thing for Duke fans to take away from all this. Yeah. Especially when we talk about, right. He, he kind of prided himself that if the one thing that he kind of expressed some pride on over his ratings is that they are they're very you know there's a lot of continuity in his rankings he doesn't tweak it a lot he doesn't add things it doesn't take things out and 
he even doesn't want you to compare, you know, years to years, because even with those little tweaks, he just like, hey, this is a new season, you know, new rating system. But over the years, it's very consistent. With Duke, the continuity for the last 42 years was one man. Like, if you think about it, there's only one man who has been in part of all those Duke years, and that that man is Coach K. So this year is the complete opposite of continuity. Everyone on the team is adding to, you know, a stop in that continuity because, again, that one, you know, continuous element of Duke basketball is no longer on the sidelines, at least as the head coach. So uh, I, I think that's going to be interesting to see how that is reflected in the ratings this year for Duke. Uh, and just kind of, again, I don't think John Shire is one of these coaches that's going to be calling him like, yo, why aren't we going up a few points? But it's going to be interesting to see how that, you know, those ticks up and down may come this year, as opposed to, again, the last, you know, however many years that he's he's done this rating system. Because, again, you know, when you look back at the program ratings that he had, Duke was far and away the number number one one, as you said, Jason. And now that's taking a test because they now have a new person being added to the continuity that is Duke University that has been th- shaped in the most continuous, you know, rating system there is. All right, guys, before we go, I, I do want to get to something that, that is really significant. And I think a lot of Duke fans heard about this, but I want us to spend a moment on it. All the flags on the Duke University campus have been lowered this week because Janet Hill has died. And it would be really easy to say, oh, yeah, she's Grant Hill's mom and leave it at that. And that would be a crime. If you do not know about the life that Janet Hill led, go educate yourself. I mean, yeah, she birthed one of the greatest basketball players in Duke Hoops history, but to merely make that her epitaph would be setting aside some really important, significant accomplishments. Duke did not lower the flag across the university this week because someone's mom died. They lowered it because Janet was on the Duke Board of Trustees. Janet was on the Board of Trustees for Sprint, for the publisher Houghton Mifflin, for Wendy's, Progressive Insurance and many other companies. She headed a consulting firm that uh, that advised companies on governance and planning for directors and boards and stuff. And she's widely considered one of the finest, if not the finest, board member in the entire business world. She's in all these Hall of Fames and stuff like that because of it. And everywhere she went, she pushed for diversity and inclusiveness. And I want to be clear about something. Back in 1981, Janet Hill co-founded a firm. It was adv- that started advising businesses that having a diverse workforce was a smart thing and was a path to success. 1981, diversity wasn't a very fashionable thing back then, but she continued to drive home the importance of that and the importance of having the right kind of board and the right kind of governance for companies for four decades. Like I said, she was a member of the Duke Board of Trustees from 2006 to 2021. That is a long time, folks. This is not just someone who impacted Duke basketball. This is someone who impacted the entire university. If you care about Duke, then you should care about this tragic passing. This fall, Janet Hill was due to receive Duke's Medal of Distinguished Meritus Service, which is the highest honor that Duke can give out to anyone. Sadly, it will be bestowed upon her posthumously. And I just wanted us to take a moment to acknowledge a really, really important member of our community. Yeah, um, I was floored when I heard this news uh, the other night. I think I, I shared it with you guys, like right as we found out, right as we went to, you know, basically everyone on the East Coast was about to go to bed. And, you know, I met Jana Hill several times during the years uh, in my roles with Duke alumni, uh, you know, here in D.C., you know, on campus, she was very, very involved with Duke alumni efforts. Um, it, you know, as the saying goes, Duke is one of the few universities where we treat parents the same way as we do students. And she took that to another level. Um, like you said, Jason, she was on the board of trustees as a parent. Like, you know, like when I say as a parent, I don't mean that. And, you know, just because she happens to be the parent of Grant Hill, but because she took that role and embraced it so well. She was on the tr- board of trustees for 16 years very few people stay on a board of trustees at any university for that long, but she's so beloved on campus in the alumni efforts uh, on campus in athletics. She had her hand in just about everything. And like, you know, it even goes back to when she was in college, she was a classmate of Hillary Clinton 
And Hillary Clinton's like, yo, Janet Hill got me through school. Like that, it, those words don't come, uh, you know, just, they don't come easily. They, those are, those are words that mean something. And, you know, every time the, the most important thing, every time you saw her, she remembered your name. She was warm. She was welcoming. She was inviting. She would ask about, you know, how your work is going, how your career is going, how she could help. She did that to me on several occasions. And every single time it blew me away. Cause I'm like, yeah, I've met you like four or five times, but every single time she would catch up on a conversation that you had with her previously, she had that kind of mind. So uh, this is a huge blow. Uh, I mean, to Duke University is a huge blow to the world, really. But um, for us as as Duke people, she was Duke. She was, you know, absolutely uh, 100% a part of this campus and a part of this world that we're in. So uh, I, I'm really sad about this news. And uh, I think all I speak for all of us when I say our hearts go out to, you know, Grant, Calvin, the entire Hill family, and to everyone at Duke who knew her, because there's a lot of people here who feel the same pain. Um, and I think that uh, the, the world is a little dimmer today because of that. My uh, my mom served on a board with Janet Hill in the D.C. area uh, for a number of years and would tell me periodically uh, about how cool it was to to get to work with her and interact with her. And I, I don't know, maybe this is just like my nature. I, I like to poo poo my mother a little bit uh, and, and rag on her from time to time. And I'd be like, oh, I'm, I'm sure that Janet Hill is your friend. Um, but uh, but it was actually one of the the people that my mom was like most excited to to get to talk about. And so when I when I heard the news the other day, I, I never met Janet Hill. Uh, certainly read about her and and know a lot about her, but I was immediately like, oh, um, like I you know I have to talk to my mom about this, and I'm sure that there are tons of other people who had a similar reaction. With, you know, just because I didn't know her, someone someone close to me, especially if you're in the Duke community, uh, someone close to me knows her and 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 knew her very well. So uh, yeah, it, it, incredibly tragic. She was not that old, and uh, and and was dealing with with pretty horrible uh, illness. Um, which is, I think, what what caused her passing. But um, so yeah, brain cancer. Same, yeah. What what Donald was saying, um, you know, our our thoughts are obviously with the with the whole family and the and the whole community in at Duke in in Washington, um, sort of all over the place where where Janet Hill has had an impact. Uh, you know, to bring it back to Duke basketball at the end, the the story goes, and I've never heard, I've never been able to ask Grant, I've never heard if this story was necessarily true, but the story goes that Grant Hill really just wanted when he was in high school really wanted to commit to Georgetown like he was like yeah that's where I'm going and that Janet was the one who said no you're going to go look around at other schools and I especially want you to go look at Duke she was the one who really encouraged him to go down and look at Duke now she says uh, at least I've heard that Grant got to make the ultimate decision but Grant would have apparently picked Georgetown if he'd had his way until his mother said go have a look and we can there's a friend of mine who this week said she's the single most important person who was never on the Duke staff and never played for Duke in Duke basketball history because having Grant Hill at Duke changed the course of our program. Jason, there is an alternate history about Grant Hill's recruitment at Georgetown. I don't know if we've ever told the story on the podcast and it may be like borderline libelous to share it. Do you guys know the story? Oh, I'm yeah, yeah. About? No, go ahead. It's not libelous because it's out there. Go ahead. The, yeah. I don't know if it's accurate because uh, I, I, I don't know like who reported it, but there is the version of the story that uh, that Grant Hill, who was a very good student in high school and then proceeded to be a very good student in college, in addition to being a standout basketball player, uh, that Georgetown was not super high on on academic standards for the basketball recruits when he was in high school and that the uh, academic advisor for the program had a one-on-one -on -one meeting with him, like during an official visit where they asked him to just like read a book or something. And so Grant Hill like took the book and started reading it to himself, like confused as to why that was happening. And the guy said, no, can you read it out loud? Like just to make sure that I know you can read. And Grant Hill was like, I'm out of here. Like, uh, <laughs> that's the, I think that's, tell me if, tell me if you guys know a different version of that story. Um, but that's basically the story. So I don't know. Maybe maybe Janet Hill was in the room as well. It, it was like, okay, maybe we need to check out other schools. It's more it's more of an urban legend, right? Like you know, yeah, exactly. In a sense, right? Like it. I've definitely heard that version of the story. Is it true or not? Who knows? I think that'll be probably something that'll never come to light. Um, 
in public or, or be confirmed. But um, the funny thing is, is that story about Janet telling telling him because remember he grew up in this area in the D.C. area, and even though you know Cal played for the Cowboys, he grew up here. And Georgetown's kind of the home school, right? Like the the you know the D.C. school. Um, so it sounds like someone that I know, my mom, who's like, maybe you should. Yeah, school's fine, but kind of explore your horizons, get out for college, see the world, go to, you know, ah, oh, dude, that sounds cool. That sounds like a nice place to live. Um, but yeah, that's it's uh when you told that story, Jason, that that kind of sparked a memory of uh of again the story that I have with my mom when she was basically like, We're gonna explore other options and see if you like it. In any event, again, our as Donald said, our uh, our sympathies, our feelings, our emotions go out to the entire Hill family and the and the Duke family because this is a loss for all of us. That's going to do it for us here on episode four hundred and thirty eight of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. For Donald and Sam, I am Jason. Thanks for joining us. Don't forget like and subscribe. Don't forget send us email dbrpodcast at gmail.com. That's the email address. I think that we continue to commit to respond to every email we get and at least let you know that we heard from you, if not get into a long conversation with you, <laughs> which happens far too often and sucks up way too much of our time. But, you know, that, that's how it goes. Uh, again, for Donald and Sam, I'm Jason. Our thanks again to Ken Pomeroy for one of the best, most interesting geeky interviews we've ever had here on the show. We hope you will continue to tune in and listen to us. Here is the Duke band. Play us out and take us home. Hello, guys. Hey there, Hello. Ken. Hello. All right, I'm geeking out, man. I got to tell you, do people do that? Do people meet you and just go, oh, my God, it's Ken Pomeroy? There's about, like, 1% of people that do that, and, like, 99% of people are just like, who is this guy? Like, why well, <laughs> we are Can, in the 1%, my yeah, friend. Yeah, I was going to say, we are All the right. 1%. So, yes. Love it, love it. How do I sound? Great. Fine. Yeah. New location today. Um, I'm in our uh, Chicago office. So oh, I brought cool. my micro. I brought my microphone with me. Very smart. And you have a nice looking drink there. Yep. It's an, it's a nice coffee that one of my colleagues just brought me. I was gonna say, is it an iced latte? <laughs> he's he's sitting. One of my coworkers uh, thought this was cool. He's sitting in here. Uh, and he's shaking his head at me. <laughs> <laughs> he may, he may be my direct report, getting me coffee. He might be. So that's impressive. I might be, I might be abusing the underlings. Oh, oh! When you said direct report, I thought you meant you report to him. No, you, no, no, no. He reports to me. <laughs> In that case, there's nothing impressive about it. <laughs> it's, it's really not how it works. <laughs> I was like, oh, you, we, and I, I definitely would not just like go make him get me coffee he was like oh i'm going to get coffee what's going on i was like oh actually yeah and while i'm uh doing the show <laughs> i mean when you said when you said direct report i was going to be like yeah, but... i was like sam we have an english word for that it's called boss like yeah. boss yeah <laughs> i'm his i'm his boss yeah <laughs>